Hi, everybody from the Slay Queens podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Thompson. And I'm also your host, Ashley Zoik. How are you, Ashley? I'm wonderful. How are you, Wayne? I'm doing very well. I do have a question, though. I have an answer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm confident that you do. (laughs) Ashley, what exactly is a Slay Queens podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, It is a show where you and I are both dedicated to the discussion of true crimes that affect the LGBTQIA plus community. I feel like that might be a lot for our listeners Mm -hmm. just to kind of absorb and comprehend. Can Mm -hmm. you give us uh, an AKA? I'm happy you asked that as well, Wayne. (laughs) We are also known as the show that takes a deep dive into the dark side of the rainbow. Oh, that is correct. Yes, ma'am, we do. Mm -hmm. And I happen to love the sound of that. I do too. And if you listeners love the sound of that, please, please, please uh, subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast. And we would be forever grateful. We would. So go out and slay queens. Just not each other. Just not each other. Here's my story may contain adult language and adult content, not suitable for a younger audience. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a real, an actual, real episode of Here's My Story. I was so lucky to be able to sit down last night with comedian Derek Sheen. We talked for several hours, both on and off the mic, about an array of topics. I mean, we talked about his career, um, people that he's performed with we also you know dive into the mental health part of it since this is uh, a mental health podcast and all but i could not have asked for a better person to interview for the first true interview that i've had on this uh, podcast so go out listen to holy drivel tiny idiot disasturbation and macho caballero I personally listen on Amazon, uh, you can listen on Spotify or wherever you listen. Um, he's hilarious. I cannot wait to see him again uh, in person. I cannot wait to talk to him again because there's so much that I didn't even ask uh, that I had notes on. We just got caught up in conversation and it, basically I just threw my notes away pretty early. Um but we had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, give me some love on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Rate, review, subscribe. Follow him. Uh, at the end of the show, he gives you all of his information on where you can find him. Uh, we talk about some shows he's got coming up. So uh, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoy my interview with comedian Derek Sheen. I am recording now. Excellent. How's it going? Uh, it's well, my. Uh, how are you? I'm good. Um, I've had a good day. Um, my wife and my youngest kid are out of town. I went to a workout class this morning. I went to, to lunch with a friend, had some, had some drinks. I'm watching the Cubs blow it oh, against no. the White Sox. 
<laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. Ah, you can't have it all, but uh, it's true. It's kind of, very true. Very true. Rest in peace, Cubs. Today. Yeah, it's it's been rough. It's been a rough week. They took our hearts out. They squeezed them. They threw them on the ground. They stomped a couple times. <laughs> oh, then they picked it back up, took a <laughs> bite out of it, chewed it, spit it in our faces. I mean, it was just a, it was a thing. But you know what? It's okay. It's okay. We'll 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 get through it. We'll get through it just fine. Yeah, it's almost football season. Yeah, I'm a cowboy <laughs> fan, so it's not going to be that great of a season. Oh no! So. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, so I'm so glad that we were able to make this work. Um, I've listened to all your albums. I'm so sorry. Multiple times, <laughs> and they were all hilarious. Yeah. But mainly, I just I, I would just like to welcome my listeners to my interview with Tim Robbins. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I mean, Derek Sheen, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for um, having me. So I saw you. Okay, hold on. Let me backtrack five seconds. Before I start anything, I want to say that I don't interview people. I'm going to suck. I'm going to be everywhere. But you know what? <laughs> I'm going to be all over you because I love you and I love, <laughs> I love your everything everything that you've done you, you make me laugh so hard uh, you're so you. talented so excuse me while i suck your balls <laughs> on a podcast <laughs> it's the safest place um, yeah, yes, that's true i don't have to use uh, saran wrap <laughs> or anything to be safe so that's great um so we're going to start off with you're from seattle Yes. And are you 52? I'll be 52 in December. Okay. Um, I've lived, All right. I've lived, I mean, I've lived here my whole life, born and raised. My family has been there from here. Uh, I think my great grandparents moved from North Dakota to here and then, you know, lateral move, nothing okay. big, just moving, just moving sideways. Uh, this is, North Dakota is just like Washington State, except all their buildings are like 12 feet tall, and that's it. So it's no different. Weather's no different. People are the same. They just moved here, and then we've been here forever. And then, you know, I and I haven't left. I I should have. I should have gone to L.A. or something, but yeah, I think yeah. I do. From what I hear, L.A. is a shithole to begin with. Everybody's yeah. leaving. I mean, now I have a feeling I just talked to a friend of mine who works out there is in the industry. And I was like, get ready because Portland's going to be the new L.A. And then Seattle's going to be the new Portland because everybody's going to move up because of climate change. They're going to start moving up the northwest. Everybody I follow has moved to Austin. I'm a big uh, Segura fan, Chrysler fan. They're all there. Yeah. I mean, uh, Christina P and Segura just moved there. Chrysler's not moving because he's building a house in LA. Um, he's not wanting to move his kids out of high school. I know that. Um, but I know obviously Rogan went there and everybody who's ever climbed up his ass has followed him. They all moved there. Yeah. Yeah. So 
that's apparently the hot spot these days but i you know for a while know. until they live in austin for a year and then they're like fuck <laughs> this and then they go back to new york or yeah oakland or san francisco or right dallas <laughs> <laughs> so you've got four albums you have holy drivel which is an amazing play on words from uh our friend Dio. Everybody loves Dio, yeah. right? And Chip Chip Pope, uh, a comic. Uh, I've only met once, but super funny, really sweet guy. I when I he named it. That's that was his. He gave that the title to me. Okay. That and one was, was re- originally released in 2012, but you re-released it in 2017, correct? Yeah, we did a vinyl re-release. Okay. Uh, picture disc and vinyl, regular vinyl. Okay. Um, I have some pretty shitty notes handwritten um and there it's it's a mess i'm not gonna lie but uh one of the things that i have to ask as a person who when i was in junior high i was always kind of like the funny guy i was a funny kid you know cheap laughs whatever it's not hard to do when you're in middle school right it's the best time to do it it doesn't mean you're going to be a comedian and thank thank to this you know huge thanks to this kid his name is nick in sixth grade he showed me the way because he did something just completely stupid in the middle of class everybody laughed i was like i like how that feels i would like everybody to laugh at what i do so then fast forward to like seven, late seventh grade, early eighth grade, when I found out about uh, the senior picks, class clown, yada, 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 yada. I was yeah. like, that's my goal. I am going to win class clown. Like it meant shit. Like it meant anything. Well, I did. And obviously it didn't mean a thing because I'm not a comedian. I don't do anything that's funny anymore because I'm a fun, a 41 year old fat man who every year that goes by everything I do that I think is funny is wrong or not funny or just <laughs> pisses people off, but Welcome to comedy. <laughs> exactly. But my, one of my biggest questions that I would have to ask a professional comedian is when did you know that this is what I'm going to do? I know that you had, at a very young age, you did the George Carlin thing, like a, uh, like a talent show. Yeah. Or, or was it like a show and tell kind of thing? Talent show. I did Carlin, yeah. and I got I got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> oh, I, I, at that age, I could imagine. You know, <laughs> Carlin wasn't exactly the cleanest, but but my mom thought it was awesome. Like, That's she awesome. Come pick me up from school. And she was like, you did what? And I was like, well, it was talent show. And I did George Carlin work for work. And of course, my teacher was like, not, I mean, they had to send me to the principal's office because it set an example. But she was also like, I am impressed with how good your memory was. Like he had the entire bit down. So I knew like, oh, well, I like this. I like, I didn't necessarily like getting kicked out of school for a couple of days, but I did love the feeling that I entertained an adult. Right. Like, I liked that. And it made my mom laugh. But you were... I, I feel like that thing where it's like, you know, I almost, because you, you said it, and then in my head, I said it in a different, like a different voice, you know, where, which is like, 
when did you know that you were that this was what you were going to do and in my head what i heard was like when did you know in your life that this is what you were going to do like didn't you have like aspirations and hopes and dreams but then at some point you're like yep comedy i guess i'll just do that fuck it okay i can do that more like how it I mean, I always loved being the center of attention and and telling stories and, you know, I like being the 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 glue at a party where I could get everybody to kind of group around me and I'd have, you know, I'd I'd hold hold the the conch and, you know, I liked that feeling. It, there's it's a weird power for a guy who's like five foot four and has no upper body strength. That that's the only that's my power is that I, as long as I can have some attention and it's positive, we're a little negative, but. But I think that that was like, I liked that, but I didn't necessarily think stand-up was going to be where I would end up. I wanted to be a musician. I mean, I worked really hard at that too. Um, and I loved stand-up, but I just, it scared the shit out of me. It still, yeah. to this day, scares the shit out of me. You did your first open mic. I have it here somewhere. I'm, I guess I had terrible notes. Your first open mic at like 13, yeah. I think is what it was. Yeah, that's the comedy terrifying. That's absolutely terrifying. Oh, I, I you want to know what's even scarier is I lived in a place called Federal Way, Washington. And if you look on a map of Washington State, you'll see that that is about 27 miles from downtown Seattle. Um, and I would, my mom would let me get on a bus in our little farm town and take a bus all the way downtown by myself <laughs> to go to the comedy club. A, because she was agoraphobic, and B, because I think she was kind of hoping someone would take me. And uh, and then she would, I would come back at like 11 o'clock at night, you know, walk a couple miles from the bus stop to come home, you know, 13-year-old kid. That's crazy. And, I mean, she just, you know, she knew I'd be fine. She didn't, she never worried. But they let me hang out in the back, and I got on stage a few times. I, I enjoyed watching from the back and seeing how comedy was like a real thing. I'd seen a lot of it on TV and I had tons of albums, but seeing it happen was a completely different thing. And I think that's what started to scare me as a kid. Like, I want to do this, but I have to do that. Like I have to get up there and then I have to be consistent. Oh my God. Like, what if I fuck up? What, what if I say the wrong thing? Right. It's like one of those, it you hear it a lot with, with comics. If you like in this day and age, when you listen to podcasts, you get, you know, more of a behind the scenes look of, of how they do things and how they, you know, work material over and over and over and over again until they get it right. Like, yeah, I've noticed on a couple of your albums, you've repurposed a few jokes, but they're just different enough that, if you're not really paying attention, you're not going to notice it. Um, the, the, the two that stand out to me are the cookie dough off the gun barrel. That's on two of your albums. And there's another one. And off the top of my head, I can't remember what the other one was, but like, you can tell that the first time you did it, it was funny and you caught the, and you caught the crowd off guard. But the second time you did it, the delivery was perfect. And you can tell that you had worked it and worked it. And it was just a little bit different that the, the reaction from the crowd just tells it all. 
and I can't remember the second one for the life of me. And I'm not going to shuffle through my notes to there, make there's a few in a there. Bunch of notes. I, yeah, I, I do it a because I every time I record an album, I'll I'll burn that material after a few months. Like once I record the album, I still tour for a while, and mm-hmm. then once it drops, I burn all the material. So I every single album I've realized that after I've recorded it all the jokes sound better my timing's better and now i'm i'm like oh i should have recorded it now and then a week after i think that i'm like fuck i should have recorded it now like these jokes are even they're never done but like i kind of like having this concept of uh uh, frank zappa used to coin this phrase conceptual continuity Mm -hmm. where there would be little tidbits little easter eggs little uh narrative threads that would tie all the albums together and so he'd have little idioms and little musical icons and you'd hear them in the middle of a song or a solo or you'd hear a little piece and you're like, oh, that's from this song, which is also like, you know, borrowed from this thing. And mm-hmm. it just was this great idea where it felt like everything was connected in a way. So I kind of liked doing little things like that. It wasn't necessarily on accident because I, I liked, I've, I think I've weaved parts of other jokes into stories on later albums and brought them up, you know, or kind of tried them a different way. So I think I just, that, and I feel like I, I, I always feel like my jokes aren't done, but, but I like having that little bit of continuity between everything where you're like, Oh, that's a callback from that thing. So if you listen Mm -hmm. to all the albums, there's a little something for everybody who, you know, a little Easter eggs here and there for everyone. You kind of perks your, perks your ears up a little bit, but like, Oh yeah, I know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Cause that's one thing that I've never, is always wanting to be the funny guy and you know i've made comedy albums myself with just ridiculous songs and stuff but it's always just been for friends and for fun and it's never been anything that i've ever put out like in the zeitgeist for people to to consume in any way shape or form but for people who know me and the people who have grown up with me like i totally get you know, repurposing here and there and the ones that know, they know. So that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's something um, that's kind of fun for fans, but you know, what's funny is I, I mean, I just did a podcast where they, they want to hear like your earliest, like the shit that you don't want anybody else to hear, like your bad, like the shit jokes that you never used. And, uh, and then they just make fun of you and you, you enter into it and you're like, yeah, let me do that. Well, I, I had, I brought an album that I had never released, like the first comedy album I ever did, because it is an unlistenable mess. And the production's great. Like sound quality is amazing. I hired people, but oh my God, like the sound of my voice and my jokes and nothing's finished. And there's just the stage banner is so bad. And the most, it's all cringe from beginning to end everything is just shoulders up the whole time i was listening to it i was like oh man oh my god i hate this this is exactly what i was afraid of like no one does that with music you know where they're like listen to your first album what a piece of shit it's like (laughs) oh you grew you grew as an artist but comedy you know it's it's very like hopefully you grow and you, you you do get better and you change and you know you listen to yourself you start tempering and and moving things but it's it's definitely i don't know i think four albums I, i'm three three albums too much that's why i think because <laughs> yeah, the way i see it is that comedy is way harder of a profession than say a musician 
because as a vocalist, as a bass player, as a guitarist, as a, as a guy that plays drums, you, you work out your song and you play it. And that's just how you play it. As a comedian, you have to constantly rework your jokes. You have to dance around. I'm getting into this a little earlier than I thought I would, but the cancel culture of it of today, Mm -hmm. like there's definitely some stuff in your older albums that to some people, if you just don't get it and you don't understand the art of comedy and the art of intention, th- they could very easily go, oh, this, Jer- this Derek Sheen, fuck this guy. He's a piece of shit. Like, cancel, oh, cancel, cancel. Yeah, because, you know, the, I won't say it, but I'll say the other F word has yes. been uttered a few times. And that's, that's a very tricky word to navigate when it comes to, to anything. And, and it's music, it's comedy, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's everything. And like, I listen to a band now, I've listened to a lot lately that use that F word a lot in their older music. And it's not intended to, it's not thrown at that group of people in a derogatory way it's just used as an in general term, but that band has grown and they've gone away from that style and they've still produced and have flourished in the music industry and are probably bigger now today than they've ever been. But with comedians, it's completely different because they will go against you for something that you said 10, 12 years ago and hold you accountable for it when back then it was a completely acceptable thing like yeah you know i I, my my feeling on that though is like like i i have also grown and adjusted with the times Mm -hmm. and and so there's a lot of stuff that i there's a lot of stuff on older albums that i'm there are things i would never do on stage again Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't necessarily, I, I'm, I don't even necessarily defend them anymore because I think my thinking's changed and the, you know, and the, the, the culture's changed a lot. Um, but it, you know, I kind of, in a way I'm like, I'm fine with leaving it out there as a signpost to show where people have come from, what our attitudes were, but like, you know, my feeling is if someone goes back and they find something that makes them mad. I don't, I can't defend it. And I think that's where the, the intersection of like, you know, cancel culture and stuff starts to ruin people is that uh, like, I love my material, but I don't love it enough to fight that hard for it. If I don't really believe in it. Right. Like if there's words and stuff that I said in the past that are offensive and there are, I'd be the first one to cop to it. If anyone called me on it and, and, and I've been called on it in the past. And the thing is, I just, you know, it's admitting that it's that it's shitty language that it you know it victimizes a marginalized group and you grow as a person and then you just don't defend it because it's undefendable you know but i also like leaving it out there for people to discover so that we can have those conversations i'm i'm fine with it now i think the part of i think a part of me 
I had to learn that the hard way is the biggest fights I've ever had in, in, in standup were the ones where I tried to defend the indefensible because I didn't know it was okay to just admit that it was like, that was shitty. I shouldn't have done that, you know, or maybe I should have cho mm. chosen my language differently. I don't, I'm not married to this stuff enough. I have my babies. There are, there are pieces that I've written that I will, I will actually go down defending forever. But mm -hmm. a good majority of the stuff that, that might be problematic, I, now I'm just kind of like, you know what? But that's, have it, you know? Have it, burn it, kick it to death. Those, those are babies I didn't want, you know? Right. Those are babies, those are unwanted pregnancies. Take them uh, yeah. and make a vaccine out of them and then put a microchip in that vaccine and then give it to everybody <laughs> so we can find out where they went. Well, those but, vaccines are actually made of tiny little guns that... <laughs> that you can give to the to the blood cells then the guns go around and shoot the virus that's how you get people to go oh guns okay i'm a big fan of the second amendment yeah um, but like those, those I, blood know, cells have the right to bear arms <laughs> i've had i've had these discussions with other comics about because i i have you know of course i have a lot of i have a lot of friends that that's their fear is that you know i might say something there and i might get called out for it and I'm just in that place where I'm like, if I get called out for something, I'm going to be the first one to realize that I know what I'm doing and I know what I'm saying. So if I'm trying to get that reaction, then I don't really, I shouldn't really defend it because I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm trying to push a button and get a reaction. So I, I can't act offended and be like, what? Uh, but it's comedy. Like if I say something dumb, I hope that I'm given the opportunity to make amends do better and write better and and i mean that's the same thing as just writing shitty jokes and making an audience mad you know it really is it's the same i mean you know the idea of being offended or you know the displeasure with comedy it it's personal choices and i just try to like i try to appeal even if i'm talking about shitty stuff or dark stuff i still try to find a way to bring everybody in and if some people don't like it that's okay you know as long as they don't like it because it sucks or it's not their flavor or you know i'm not the kind of thing that they like then i'm totally cool with it if it's a thing where they don't like it because i hurt their feelings or i made them feel shitty then i gotta fix it you know do you have a lot of people come up to you after shows and just say hey this was shitty because yada 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 yes and do, i mean do you get the belligerent as well as the, the calm, normal-headed yeah, people? I do. I get the belligerent because I've just, I worked in customer service for a while in retail. Okay. And well, one thing I know I, how that is. Yes. And people come in like that because they're all ready for you to resist. They're all ready for you to defend your stance. So they're already angry because that is how they're like, I've got to be able to push through this wall of bureaucracy and they're already mad. So they come up to you and they're like, I don't like what you said. And then when they realize that you're disarmed and you're like, you're right, that was shitty. Then they just deflate and they're like, oh, what? So, I mean, I've had, I've had people approach me angrily, but I just take a breath because I know that they're thinking in their heads that I'm going to be a belligerent dick about it. Right. Because a, a lot of people will be when you, if you call them out, people don't like the things they said being thrown back at them. And, and I'm fine with it, man. I mean, it's language. You know, it's an ever-evolving thing. And so are our, our, I think, our ideals. I mean, we're, 
we're light years ahead of where we were 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, where standup is and, and art and, 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 you know, what we're willing to tolerate. I mean, we, people got away with a lot of shit back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't cool. Some of it's funny, but it's funny because it's not cool, you know, because yeah, you realize yeah. it, it's the same thing when you have to, like, when someone eats shit walking down a street and your first reaction isn't, oh my God, that poor person. But your first reaction is like, what a fucking idiot. It's that, that's that dark feeling that creeps up in us that, you know, we kind of enjoy sometimes. And it's the same shitty thrill we get out of watching like 80s comedies where you're like, oh, or Remo Williams. And you're like, isn't that Joel Gray playing an Asian dude? And (laughs) that was in the, that was in the 80s, but I'm still like, I still fucking like Remo. I'm not going to say anything about it. Right. So, and, and blackface is obviously one of the biggest triggers. You know, you've got Ted Danson doing it. It, it I, I don't remember exactly. Was it a roast? Of yeah, Flip it Gold was a, a Friars roast. And okay. Okay. but I will say, you know, I've never defended it. I'll never defend it. I think it's a terrible thing. But the only time it's ever made me laugh, ever, uh, ever, 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 the only time I I will ever laugh at that was Pat Paulson on uh the merv griffin show um apropos of nothing because he he wanted to do this he knew what he was doing mm-hmm. he wasn't doing it like uh, um ironically to be like look what i'm i'm pushing buttons he did it because he wanted to get this guttural reaction mm-hmm. they introduced comedian pat paulson who used to run for president as a joke every year right came out in full tucks and tails blackface white gloves and then just started doing his stand-up routine never once called attention to it never once affected an accent just came out in blackface white tucks and tails fucking griffin's off the couch he can't believe this is happening no one on the panel and the audience is is also very mixed and everyone's laughing because at the time and this is the only reason it's funny at the time, this was sort of like at the tail end of all the civil rights violence. And we had reached this plateau. It's like 73, Nixon was out of office. And it was exactly what needed to happen at the moment to just break this tension, this unspoken racial tension. And he knew what he was doing. And he knew that it was shitty, but it was shitty to sort of do that, to kind of snap that tension open. He did it for a reason. And People fucking, they loved it. It was so goddamn funny. And it was the only time he ever did it. And he just living in the moment, like, I just want to do this. And I know it's wrong. And they even cut like to commercial about a minute and a half in. Cause they were like, we can't, they knew it was wrong. Everybody right. knew it was wrong. It was wrong in 1973, but it's so good. It's the only time I've ever laughed at it. And I, I'm not defending it. I'm just saying, if you ever watch the clip, You'll see the only time I think that it was ever appropriate ever in American history to laugh at that. And it was so well done. And Paulson's message was really clear, you know? So, uh, but it, that shit would never work because I don't think- No, it would never fly climate, today. My only, really my only experience with blackface jokes and all that, because I, I live- you you've been to Peoria, so you know, you know Illinois. It's just, uh, 
you know it's it's nothing but shitty roads casey's gas stations and cornfields and just really shitty roads um i live in pekin which is about 15 20 minutes from peoria depending on where you're going and pekin is i mean you can look up pekin on google and you'll see an extreme racist history based around pekin like as a sundown town like don't be colored past sundown in this town and you know uh ties to the kkk and oh yeah and all this other stuff and it it's bad i mean and, and we've as a as a as a city have done a pretty okay job of kind of deflecting some of that because a lot of it has to do with the railroads you know we have a, a pretty major railroad system that goes through here that that had a lot to do with the KKK back in the day and it's 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 overblown but we still do have a lot of those people around here waving their s- southern flags and yeah shake my fist you know those the, the types of people flag is probably changed to the Trump one flag imagine <sighs> don't <laughs> don't get me started cuz i'm on the right side of the tracks in a in the more <laughs> affluent side of town and i still see way too many trump it's how do you fly flags. a confederate flag without flying one that's the one. <laughs> oh, 2024 let's go <laughs> um anyway um so when i was growing up I, th- that f word the n word uh gay calling people gay call you know for being don't be gay that kind of stuff yeah like all those words when i was growing up i'm 41 so i was born in 80 so i you know i'm not young enough to be a patriot when it comes uh, oh that's a bad word to use i know what you mean though i know exactly what you mean yeah yeah yeah. I, i i'm not young enough to be on the front lines of that but i'm also not quite old enough to have lived through a lot of stuff like you know in the 70s and all that stuff but when i was growing up my god i think i was let's see my wife and i have been together 12 years now i think and i think within the first six months of us dating i learned about ding dong ditch for the first time okay <laughs> And I didn't know what that was. And the only reason I heard about that was because a friend of mine, same age as me, was a teacher. And we were, me and him and his roommate were hanging out. I think we were watching football that night. And some of his students ding dong ditched him. And I go, what the fuck is that? Is it ding dong ditch? That's when they you know run up and they, they press the doorbell and they run away. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> okay. You want to know what it was when I was growing up? In oh no! In Illinois, it was called <clears throat> N-word knocking. Uh, so yeah. I thought that yeah. word I was okay for so long. I had no idea that it was such a derogatory term, and, and that—that's the stigma that I've had to grow up with in this town for so long. So I was so ignorant to PC culture for so long 
And the first time I think I ever encountered blackface, I want to say was when Jimmy Kimmel did Carl Malone. Oh shit. That always is going to haunt him forever. And (laughs) I thought, I thought it was hilarious only because I was a huge, huge basketball fan growing up. I've been a Bulls fan my entire life. And, you know, during the Bulls run, you know, Utah was always a huge opponent. They were a formidable opponent. And I didn't see that as I'm making fun of a black guy. I saw it as I'm making fun of Carl Malone. I didn't see color. And I think that's the biggest issue with some of the people, most of the people, in my opinion, is they want to see color in everything. And they want to see race in everything. And it's not, the jokes aren't always about color and race. Sometimes it's just trying to be goddamn funny. I know, but the problem is now that because I think, I think it's easier for, for us to, to feel like it shouldn't be as important, but a lot of that is because we haven't been affected on that same level mm-hmm. by the politics and the socioeconomic uh, sort of the mechanisms that are in play. And so for, even for me, it took me a long time to realize like when, like why I would go like, that's not that bad, you guys. But it wasn't that bad to me because I never got called that name. Like right. I never got called that word. Mm-hmm. I've, anytime I've been pulled over, cops have been super nice to me. Always same, nice to me. Let me here. show my driver's license, even though I had a car full of drugs. They were like, whatever, sir, move along. I've got and a so few I've stories never, about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've never, I just never. So my experience, I kind of had to stop and go, well, yeah, I guess I'm looking at this. It's like me trying to talk about like what it's like to be a woman. Like I've, I've done, I've had the dumb male audacity to try that. Like you ladies don't understand, like being a, like I, it's a life. I, I don't know what that's like. I don't, I only know what it's like to be a white dude. And so I feel like now the, the, the reason that there's so much more of a focus on it is because the same reason that we see a lot of um, what used to be sort of closeted attitudes about you know, how language and, and, and sort of, you know, political correctness is because now we're more open to talking about it. And so it's now becoming less of a stigma. Mm-hmm. And so now we're starting to recognize that there, like, there are uh, systemic problems and there are things that, that, you know, white America just has ignored or have, luckily we just haven't experienced because we, we kind of created all these things. And so there's systems in place. I mean, I, I think the reason that it's a bigger deal now is just because it's not it. People don't have to tolerate it. And I think mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s, it was OK. And that's why I think the Pat Paulson thing, even like the reason it was funny is because it happened in that moment, but also because Pat Paulson could get away with it, you know, yeah. and, and that's why things like that happen is because there wasn't there wasn't any like there wasn't a chain of command, you know, uh, black people didn't have agency to say like, that pisses me off. And I have, mm-hmm. you know, I have power to change it. I can boycott companies would be like, boycott all you want. We don't care. You know what? There's not, there's, you're a minority and we don't care. 
you can do whatever you want, but we're not going to change what we do just because you don't like it. And so now that there is a much bigger socioeconomic platform for people of color, I think it's, it is easy. That's why we hear more of it is because they're able to have their voice heard. And it seems like a paradigm shift, but in reality, I think it's just, it's the normal turn of the wheel is now that everybody's starting to have a voice. Now it, it you know, ours isn't being white people is it's not being drowned out. It's just becoming equalized. And it's still a little bit, um, it can be a little, a little jarring for people who haven't been told like, no, you know, for almost a quarter century. <laughs> like white people just haven't been told no. I was, I was talking about this the other day with someone is the fact that like race, race is just a construct. We created it, right? Like white people created that so that we had a tier system where we could sort of go like, well, you know, there are classes of people and we're up here, unfortunately, because we bind books. And so if you're not this color, you're probably not as superior as us. And so they created this strata in order to control people. And they even had the cocky audacity to call it race. Like a race is a contest, you know, and we created that contest and it's impossible to win it unless you're white. You know, you can always, we always go like, hey, get in here. You know what? You it doesn't matter. I know you think you can't win, but get in here. You can run. If you can beat us at this race, then all this is yours. But just so you guys know, we have a 2000 year head start. And the, also we keep extending the track and, and adding new obstacles. So, uh, but you're more than welcome to try. You just got to run really fast. Yeah, just keep on trying. Just, <laughs> just so, keep pushing. Just keep pushing. You know, and, and in a race, it's great because we, you know, when you, when you invent the game and you implement all the rules and design a system of cheats that are only available for subscribers, um, it's very easy to go like, hey, get in here, you know, it's fair competition as long as you understand that there's a handicap we're operating on that so we own everything. So come on in and try real hard and be an American and, you know, don't say anything that makes me mad because I also own the grocery store and your insurance company and uh, the tire place and, yeah, I can really make things tough for you, man. So, you know, I, I feel like, and that's a heavy way to look at it, but it's a race. And unfortunately in a race, um, this is the way that we designed it is that somebody's got to win and then a whole bunch of people lose. And, and I think now we're at a place where people are realizing that that game is rigged and that it's been unfair. And, and so we bear the brunt of it and good. I think the only thing that I see when I go to the South, although I haven't been there in a year and a half, but I'm sure the attitude is still prevalent is this feeling of like that something's going to get taken away. And that's what white people out there are scared of. There's things are changing. It's going to get taken away. And I'm like, we're going to take our guns and take our jobs. Yeah. And I'm like, no, the only thing that's going to get taken away is your ability to get away with like saying the N word and Applebee's Donna. Like that's the thing that you're afraid is that you're going to lose your power, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and that's all it is. I I'm, I'm going to be so stoked when we're, when the tide turns a little bit and, and we're able to just sort of suss things out because I think, you know, we're, this is, it's a great, we live in an amazingly strange time where things aren't awesome, but we are probably going to live through an incredible sea change and, and it's going to change everything. I mean, you know, from a comic standpoint, I think that um, a lot of comics will be scared because they can't just, you know, shoot for low-hanging fruit 
and, yeah. and build an audience on, you know, they'll build an audience of guys that, you know, are just like, I like when, I like when you say things that make people mad because I can't say those things at work and they'll always have that audience. But like, but I like the idea that stand up can change. Like I've changed, you know, this is what we started talking about at the beginning is, I mean, the things I said on my first album are things that I, I didn't say on the second album or things that I definitely didn't say on the third album. Like there's, there's, you know, the writing I hope is better, but also like my attitude definitely changes. You know, you can mm -hmm. see that there's a little bit of progression and not, and not pandering progression, but genuine growth as a person. I was in my, I think I was 40 when I recorded, um, or 41 when I did Holy Drivel, you know, so I was your age and now I'm 51 and, and you can, you can see maybe it's age. Maybe I, maybe, I don't think I've mellowed with age. I think I've gotten, you know, a little more harder around the edges, but, but I think that my attitudes have changed genuinely and it can, you can create standup that is just as uh, daring and scary and edgy, but I choose different tools, you know? I like making people think about their mortality and scaring the shit out of them that way than saying that, you know, the bottom's gonna fall out and you're not gonna be able to say fire in a crowded movie theater anymore. And then everybody's like, well, we didn't wanna say that. Well, now you can't. Well, now you so can't. There. Now I'm moving to Austin and I'm starting a podcast. Exactly, that's, yeah. <laughs> So that took a long turn. Oh God, I'm so sorry. No, 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 no. It's perfect. You're a way, way better guest than I am an interviewer. Um, <laughs> but everything you said was spot on. Um, but the next thing I had on my list before we dove into album specifics was I saw you in 2019 at the jukebox there in Peoria. Right next to the raceway. Yeah. With the immortal Brian Posehn. Ah, my favorite. That guy has been one of my favorite comics since I don't even know when. So I went to that show specifically for him. And when I, when that show was over, uh, my friend Adam and I were the ones that went. As soon as you left the stage, we both had tears in our eyes. <laughs> like you killed it. And it was amazing. And it's like one of those things where <clears throat> when you go to a comedy show or when you go to a concert, when the opener is a band that you've never heard of before, you usually just sit there and tolerate it. Eight, nine times out of 10, you're just going to go, okay, it's music. Okay, it's comedy. Cool. Play your drums. Play your stringed instruments and you sing and we'll just bob our heads and good time to get we're, drinks. We're we're just waiting for we're just waiting for Motley Crue to hit the stage, you know? And but you just killed it that night. And I don't know if if you just had a great night or you would come under your own to that at that time or whatever, but based on your albums that I've listened to, you've just had it the whole time and how you're opening. Just, I, I didn't understand it. And the best part about it was after the show, because, you know, pre COVID and all, yeah, we were out in the lobby of that 
tiny ass club. I don't understand how that club is the location of it, the size <laughs> of it. It shouldn't work. And it also reminds me of a TARDIS. It, like from the yeah. outside, I'm like, this just looks like a phone booth. And you go in and you're like, how do you fit a hundred people in here? It, yeah. I've only been there a few times. I've seen, obviously, I saw you and, and Brian there. I saw Jimmy Pardo there once, which was funny. He was good. He's great. Not, not exactly my type of humor, but he made me laugh. Uh, his crowd work is second to none. Yeah. Because he, he can go back and forth and just remember names. And I, I can't even remember the last time I went to the bathroom, let alone... <laughs> someone's name from 20 minutes ago that he just jumps back and forth from anyway i digress but after the show we're hanging out he comes out taking pictures and all that stuff and i you know i'm in line and i get my i get my picture with him and you're just kind of standing there i was like dude get in here you're like <laughs> what me I'm like yeah you were awesome. Get in here. We had this great picture that I, I sent to you last time when we were supposed to do all this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'll post it when I actually post this whole thing. But, like, your general attitude of just, no one's here to see me. Hi. I'm <laughs> just here to whatever. Hi. Hi. You know, like, rubbing your foot in the dirt and like kind of swaying your body with like the finger and the cheek kind <laughs> of thing that's it's how like, i am after dude. i headline a show that's the same thing i'm just like i'm sorry <laughs> yeah i don't know you're great <laughs> and i want to know how you hooked up because i mean you've been with some pretty big names in the industry i've been lucky Posein. Patton Oswalt, who is one of my all-time favorite comics. Yes. Jane Garofalo, which if you aren't a fan of Janine Garofalo in the general. What's wrong with you if you're not, not a fan, fan of Janine Garofalo? Like, yeah. I mean, I think she got she, I think she got wedged in some pretty shitty roles, like movie-wise that just made her less than what she actually was. Yeah, they always put her as like the, the dumpy girl, whatever. But, you know, she did what she had to do at the time. But as a comedian, she's freaking amazing. But like, how did, because I know you, you've toured with Hossein probably more than anybody. Oh, yeah. Brian, I've toured with. How, how did you get hooked up with him? Um, I, I met a guy named Mike Drucker who moved out here from New York. Um, he was a young comic. He was 22, 23, moved out here. He's a writer and he moved out to Seattle to work for Nintendo and he wrote video games, but he also loved standup and he was a great comic. He wrote, he wrote a bunch. He'd already been published in, um, McSweeney's and, um, wrote remotely for the onion. And, um, we became really fast friends because we were both dorks and, uh, his agent, his manager, excuse me, managed Brian and managed Patton. And so he had the, the good fortune to open for both those guys all the time. And uh, he was Patton's guy up here and Brian's guy up in the Northwest. And he got a, he submitted a packet to Fallon when Fallon got late night and became the, one of the, eventually became one of the head writers on the show, but he ended up moving to New York and was like, I can't do standup anymore. It's, I got to make a choice. 
I'm either going to write for the Tonight Show or I'm going to keep doing stand-up. And of course, he did the right thing and went and wrote for Late Night. I think that's pretty obvious. But we did a, um, he goes, hey, he also didn't drive. And uh, I'll try to make the story not so long. But he said, uh, hey, can you drive us to Yakima where we're doing a, a, Brian's got a show at the Pin Crosby Theater in Yakima, Washington. And I was like, yeah, 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 we're spoken, yeah, Yakima. And I drove them because neither, you know, Brian was flying in. Mike didn't didn't drive, didn't have a driver's license. So he was like, we'll get you like 15 minutes in the show. And I went, I don't care. I get to hang out with Brian. I get to meet Brian Posehn. Like my big comedy heroes at the time were Brian and Zach and Patton and Maria and Dana Gould. And like, those are the people I looked up to. And so the prospect of meeting Brian Posehn, I was like, holy shit. And I did not, ex- I did not expect six foot 11, six foot 10 Brian Posehn <laughs> to get into my car. You know, my, I had a fucking Kia soul. And uh, so, you know, it's like the, just the dent in the hood from where his head just rested. And uh, we drove all the way to Yakima. Mike just had his laptop open was playing video games. And I had my playlist on and he was like, what are you listening to? And I was like, Mortician. And he's like, you like fucking Mortician? And I was like, yeah. And then we started talking about metal and then we talked about guitars and then we talked about serial killers. And then I told him that I got a phone call from Ed Gein on my 12th birthday. And then we were best friends forever. You can't gloss over that. What, what was that? You got a call from Ed Gein on your 12th birthday. I got a happy birthday from Ed Gein on my 12th birthday. It was like the original cameo or like what? Yeah. (laughs) Like, this is before like serial killer culture where everybody was like, this is a weird, so like it hadn't really been a thing, you know, true crime wasn't a thing. And it was kind of like a dark seedy underbelly. And my older neighbor, um, Daryl Johnson uh, was a comic book collector and into punk rock. And he had all these books on crime and he was like 16, 17, I was 11. And so I always looked up to that dude because he was in all the dark shit. And, um, and he gave me this book on uh like a to z the most you know disturbing crimes in american history and i took it home and i was a voracious reader so i plowed through that book in like four days all 1300 pages of it just look like amazed at all the crazy crime and murder but the thing that stuck out to me was the story of ed ed gein because that just for some reason it just it made no sense to me i was like how could someone like do that like he didn't just kill people like he made things out of them like he, you know yeah and and like kept a woman in his barn and he gutted her like a deer and i in and it wasn't a thing where i was like um where i was uh, uh titillated by it i was absolutely terrified and confused and like i couldn't figure out how how does the mind work like that and my mom had to like sit down with me and go well you know he doesn't have any feelings for people he's very lonely and i was like oh i'm so amazed by this so i dug into ed gein i we wrote the Wisconsin State Police um, to see if they had any like stuff they could send us because back then nobody gave a shit. It was a you know long dead case. Like, do you have any uh, papers or like things you could uh, you know mimeograph Xerox for us? And we got an envelope with a bunch of shit in it, like uh, black and white copies of crime scene photos, oh, wow. uh, letters from the prosecutor's office, um, all kinds of stuff. All photograph, all photocopied. My mom was like. We went through the case together and I kind of like learned all about Ed Gein. And then this became like a thing. Like I wasn't obsessed. I was just fascinated. And I ended up getting some other books. And so for my 12th birthday, um, my neighbor, 
had spent about three or four months calling the Wisconsin State County Mental Facility that he was housed in because he was 81 or something and, uh, and you know, was a model patient. Um, you know, I mean, he wasn't a prisoner. He was a patient of the state and they loved him. He was a sweetheart, nice guy. What he wanted was to not be alone. He was isolated and he went insane. And he was also a, soci- a psychopath. So they thought he was just a kind old man. And he set up a relationship with him and told him that he had a long lost nephew. Uh, and nobody questioned that. There was no internet. They didn't know that his brother was never married. You know, they didn't think about that shit. But he convinced the staff that uh, my birthday was coming up and I wanted to connect with my uncle who I'd never met. And so I came over to the house. My mom knew what was going on and they brought me over to the house and the whole family was sitting around a fucking uh, side table in the living room with a phone on it in the middle of the room. And he had the receiver off the hook. And when I walked in the house, my mom was like, someone's on the phone for you. And I walked in and I got on the phone. I had no idea who it was. I said, hello. And they were like, is this Derek Sheen? And I said, yeah. And he said, this is your uncle, Ed. We've never met. And I heard it was your birthday. And I just wanted to wish you a happy birthday. And I really appreciate you calling me. And I didn't know, you know, I didn't know I had a nephew. And this is such a big surprise. And be good. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, and he's like, I, they treat me well here. And I'm, I, get to, I get to eat. And I'm with people. And I'm, I'm happy. And happy birthday from your uncle, Eddie. And then he had to go. And then a nurse came on and wanted to thank me for calling and it said it meant a lot to him and everybody on the floor was really happy that, you know, he got to connect with someone in his family. And I was like, I don't know who that was. And then I hung up the phone. I was like, thank you. And I hung up the phone and I was like, what was that? And it was Ed Gein. And when they told me my jaw hit the ground, the (laughs) strangest fucking coolest, weirdest birthday present I've ever received. That is absolutely other than the gravestone rubbing that i have on my wall uh, oh that's fun nice (laughs) yeah i got that that was my 40th birthday present my buddy robert uh they'd stolen the gravestone and uh this punk band and they took it on tour with him and he got a chance to meet him before the wisconsin state police uh finally got it back so he got a gravestone rubbing and that was my birthday present that's awesome i'm gonna take a quick break I'm going to go to yeah. use the restroom. I'll be right back and then we'll dive into, uh, since I'm an actual mental health podcast, we'll dive into that kind of shit. I'm into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Might be the longest piss I've taken in about four years. <laughs> I was, yeah, but I talked too long. I was about ready to leak before the Ed Gein story, but I couldn't <laughs> stop. I just, I, I couldn't stop before that because that's freaking amazing. Okay, so we talked a little bit about Holy Drivel, which I still have questions. We, we've talked a lot about stuff that I didn't plan on talking about, which is amazing, which is fine. But one of the things that I want to ask you as a comedian is how do you deal? Because it, it, on Holy Drivel, you had a bachelorette party show up. Yeah. And on top of that, every single album that you have 
in every single live album that I've ever heard from a comedian, there's always that one person that you can hear laugh every fucking joke. Yeah. How do you deal with that? How do you block that out? How do you... Because you never hear it on stage. It's like fucking EVP. Like you go and play the album back once you get back to the studio and you put everything on the Mac and you're like, let's listen to the tracks. It just shows up out of nowhere. And you're like, I can't get rid of it. You can't, you can't like, you can't compress it. It's just in there. It's some, right. somehow, it's some kind of weird fucking thing that happens where the shittiest or sometimes the best, but mostly it's the weirdest, shrillest laugh on every joke. Even, I don't remember half those laughs. I don't trust them. Huh. Like, but um, I don't know. I mean, I love, I love it when I get a weird laugh in, in person because you can have fun with that. And also it's kind of fun to see if you can kill that person. Because if they can laugh that hard, if you just keep pushing, you might actually kill someone. So, <laughs> and that's, that'd be a nice thing to put, you know, on your, on your Wikipedia page. But I don't know, those laughs, I heard that they're on every album. I know exactly which ones you're talking about. And they're all yeah. different people. But yeah. I kind of feel like it's an electronic voice phenomenon. Like you walk into an empty house and you're like, get out of here, ghost. And then you play back your audio recorder. And like, you get the fuck out of the house. You know, I didn't even hear that. <laughs> It's that kind of laugh where, uh, although the Bachelorette Party was awesome, that that first album, they were the most like they were the anti-Bachelorette Party. They were so cool and they had so much fun, and they were so nice afterwards. And uh, the real problem was, uh, and it's not on the album because I cut it all, was the eleven-minute fucking hysterical, violent melee that erupted. Oh Jesus! Um, yeah, so. That the take I did eight shows at Seattle's Comedy Underground, way too many because I'd never really done a, like an album with money behind it. And right. So I went, okay, you know, I'm going to make this work. And I did eight shows. That is three, four too many, five too many. But the and that's another thing that people don't understand is when these comedy albums and these Netflix specials and all that, they're not just one show, they're mm -hmm. multiple shows pieced together. Well, I was that was my plan. But that album is just the Saturday early show. It was the one that went the best. And the rest of the albums are all one take, uh, oddly wow. enough. Yeah, so um, Macho Caballero, I only did one show. And every, all my money was riding it. Dan Schlissel was shitting his pants the entire time. Because he's like, you're only doing one fucking show. Like, we brought cameras and we brought audio equipment. We got a crew. You're only doing one show. And I was like, yeah, I'll get it in one. I'll get it. It'll be great. And he's like, I don't like this idea. There's too much writing on it. And I, you know, my feeling is even if it didn't, wasn't the best show, it would have been an interesting show. So it would have been just as interesting if everything went wrong, but all of them were like that. Uh, Tiny idiot. I did two shows in Chicago. I only used one and I didn't cut anything in or out. When did you do that show in Chicago? That was 2004. 14, it was, it was, it was two, 2016 is what I saw, but it I was might curious. Have been, might be 2015, and I think we recorded it in 2015, and it came out in 2016. Okay. Because I, as a Cubs fan, I was curious as the timeline, whether it was before or after the Cubs finally won the World Series, because dumb shit like that's important to me. But, yeah. I mean, it, um, it, as far as timelines go, I was curious about uh, Mucha Cavallero 
because it was released in 2020, which obviously nobody was working in 2020. So I was curious when you actually recorded it. It wasn't ideal for me. Um, I recorded it um, June 24th of 2018, 2019. So my hope was to get it out by December of 2019 for my 50th birthday. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then everything went to shit because i recorded the album i recorded the album in june and we went into mix down and then about two months later my mom died and my whole life just like fell apart for about three months so i told dan to move the i'm like we can't release it now because i can't even do press for it man like my life is a mess you know and then january i started booking and i was like let's get on the road we're going to promote this album we're going to release it in april and then like the end of January, they were like, hey, we're going to close the doors, lock the gates. And and Dan's like, well, we're still on board for the April, April, April 24th release date. And I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. So wow. we couldn't really promote it. I mean, nobody wanted a, a comedy album at that point. Nobody uh, in April of 2020. Nobody was like, you know what, what I need right now is some real unexpected laughs. Just distraction that's what i need right nobody fucking wanted that everyone wanted solitude peace toilet paper matches yeah netflix and they just wanted to curl up under a blanket man nobody was releasing comedy specials yet and i came along and i was like album (laughs) check it out guys (laughs) it it just kind of it 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 was great but it it kind of had it landed with a thud and uh but what else was it supposed to do i mean it you know, we yeah. didn't have a plan in place and it had to come out um, worst possible. I think in my head, I think the chronology is 2012 was Holy Dribble. Mm-hmm. 2014 was Tiny Idiot. 2016 was Disasterbation. And then, or 2017 was Disasterbation. And then 2020 was Mantra Capo Euro. Yeah, it was 2012, 2017 for Dribble. I... I had, based on what I read, 2016 for Idiot, 2017 for Disasterbation, 2020 for Caballero. Yeah. And, okay, speaking of Disasterbation, knowing what very little I know about what comedians do to get prepared to do an album, because, like, in this day and age, you know, you're in the Netflix age, you're in the, you know, YouTube this and that and you've got you know segura and kreischer and taylor tomlinson and all these people blowing up on netflix yeah you got bo burnham just coming out with his you know latest thing which is just blown crazy 300 comics just bought keyboards and led under table lights just now exactly (laughs) so knowing everything that goes into that now but even back in 2017, when you didn't have, you know, those types of platforms, when you go in and you work your material and you work it and you work it and you finally book, you know, one, two, three, however many shows you're going to do. And you know that tonight is one of those nights where I'm going to record this album and to have the host open the show and say, ladies and gentlemen, Derek Sheen. Yay. And then close the show and call you Dan Sheen. 
<laughs> How does that feel? I, I mean, caught I caught that the first time I listened to it. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. And I again I'm not cutting anything. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously you left it in for a reason. <laughs> Yeah, because like, how does that feel? Like all the work that you put into it for (laughs) for that guy to go, fucking Dan Sheen. Who the fuck is Dan Sheen? (laughs) Like you're looking around, going, "You talking about me?" It's the perfect. Like I, I mean, I think you can from listening to all four of those, punishing yourself with all four of those albums, you can see that I have a uh, severe lack of self confidence, and I'm completely aware of it. And so I feel like public public humiliation to me is just sweet, sweet S&M bondage. Like, so, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, tiny idiot that my buddy, uh, Brian Cook, I mean, that's how he talks to me all the time. Like that album opens and closes with with phone calls from him. Yeah. Where he literally that's how he addresses me. I mean, that's why we call the album tiny idiot, because. We were in Albuquerque, God damn it! So we did a little mini tour, me and my my friend. And his whole plan, he didn't want to have fun. He just wanted to take a road trip with me to see if he could get me so mad that I would punch him. Because he didn't think it was possible. He's like, you're too nice. I can't be real. So I'm going to spend two weeks on the road with you. And I will get you to hit me. And I was like, that won't even happen. I'll book the tour. And so we booked a tour as a dare. He just didn't think I, and of course, as everything, I always, I came out on top. Uh, I, I kept my cool pretty much the entire time, even when the Albuquerque Gazette uh, called because they wanted to do a front page and a uh, entertainment section four page interview with me about my shows in Albuquerque, front page of the Albuquerque uh, monitor, right? Big fucking paper. It's the, it's their all weekly. It's in every newspaper box. I would be on the cover. Brian answered the phone because I was asleep and decided to do the interview for me before <laughs> and told the interviewer what a dumb piece of shit I was and how like what an unfunny dick I was and made fun of me a lot, which is what he, you know, he, and he, he they both were knew what was happening, but Brian was like, yeah, he's just a fucking idiot. Like, Oh my God, he's so dumb to be on the road with. So 90% of this interview was Brian's quotes about what a fucking idiot I was. And on the cover of the Gazette is just me, the picture of me, and it says, tiny idiot comes to town to do comedy. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't even know it. We were walking down in Albuquerque the day the paper came out, and I was super excited. And all I saw was Brian's reaction when he saw it. He just grabbed his (laughs) stomach and just cried laughing because he saw the look on my face where I was like, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to hold back my laughter just to keep it off the mic. It's still bit, I'm, like I'm wheezing. One of his favorite moments was just watching me fucking crumble and was like, just looking at me like, you want to hit me, right? And I'm like, this is amazing. I can't believe you did this. <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> that's exactly what I wanted. Oh, that's great. Oh, my God. So, so I called the album Tiny Idiot, and I was like, you should just open it. I'm going to open it with your voicemails. Just come downstairs, you tiny idiot. <laughs> All right. So my podcast is a mental health podcast. And one of the reasons I reached out to you to begin with, not only because you're fucking hilarious, was because you have a very self-deprecating style of comedy. 
and you're very open about pretty much everything that you've had to deal with growing up and as an adult you've talked about you know alcoholism and depression and 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 all this stuff so that's what we're here for technically even though you know my four and a half listeners probably (laughs) don't care but you're very open about your dad being an alcoholic you're very okay i'm gonna backtrack for five seconds here and say what is it like being on stage recording an album making fun of yourself in so many ways and then talking about your penis in such detail in front of your mother Oh, I, I loved it. I mean, we <laughs> talked about that all the time. I mean, my mom, my mom knew how tiny it was, so I couldn't help it. She had sex with my dad, you know. My mom got pregnant with me the night she lost her virginity. You know how unfair oh. that is? And my dad had <laughs> my dad had a child's dick and somehow got my mom pregnant on their first go. The most depressing, sad story. And, and she, was told me, she was like, like, at, even when I was a kid, I'd be like, it's really small. And she's like, don't trust me. It's bigger than your dad's. <laughs> and I actually won. I won a Christmas uh, argument. I won a fight. Not even an, it wasn't an argument. My dad and I were like firing gasoline. And um, when we started seeing each other again, I was later in life, you know, because he spent a lot of time in prison while I was uh, a kid. So I didn't really meet him until I was 16, 17. And uh, I went over there for Christmas and all my dad liked to do was talk about, you know, he just in uh, hyper masculine mafia bullshit, right? He was in the mob, but he wasn't Italian, but he liked it. You know, we're making tri-tips outside. And so I came over Christmas morning, whole families at my uncle's place spread that side of my family not my like i loved them but they weren't very they were very uh, chaotic and and not necessarily friendly to me at that time and my dad just started in right away like i noticed you didn't bring your uh, lady friend you don't have a girlfriend yeah derek doesn't have any girlfriends you know why because he's gay and i was like yeah okay well cause, yeah because you know Good joke dad you don't have a, you know you bring your boyfriend over and of course my uncle is just like uh, and the whole family's like, yeah, Michael, you got him good. Okay. And I let it go for a little bit. He just kept needling me and needling me. And I didn't give a shit. Like, I, I'm single. I, yeah, I'm 23 years old. I live alone. I have my own place. I teach music for a living. You know, I'm, I'm happy, but I, my dad just like, he's got to get to the fucking that button. He's trying to find it, he wants to push that button and get me mad because it's fun to get me mad. And I didn't get mad. What I did is we all sat down for Christmas breakfast and my uncle is literally cutting ham off a bone. And I go, you know, what's interesting is the reason that I don't bring dates to functions with you guys is because I can't actually have a relationship with a woman because I have the underdeveloped genitalia of a child. And mom tells me that I have your dick. So I can't actually please anybody. I'm a, I'm a disaster. 
And if only I had a normal dick, maybe I could have a healthy sexual relationship. But mom told me it's probably bigger than yours. And she said, I'm a miracle baby. There's no way that, that I should even exist because she said, your, your cock was so pathetic and you let me have that. Why would you do that to me? What did I do to you? You gave me your dick. So it's your fucking fault that I don't have a date on Christmas morning. And the whole family is just like trying not to laugh. And I'm, I'm, and then I, t- I put my plate out for ham and my uncle just shakily puts some ham on my plate and I bring, and I'm just cutting and eating. I just, I said my piece and my dad got so fucking mad. And he was like, I don't have a, I don't have a small, I don't, my, my dick's awesome. I have a, I have a huge dick. You have no idea how big my dick is. You know what? I don't need you guys. Fuck you. And then he got up and got in his car and drove away on Christmas morning. And from his own house, from his own house. And my <laughs> uncle, my uncle is just, he's like, he, the whole family's really quiet. No one wants to say anything. I'm just eating. I'm the only one who's eating. And I'm just putting ham <laughs> in my mouth. And I'm just, I'm going to see how long I can hold this. And my uncle just starts laughing and he goes, if I knew it was that easy to get rid of your dad, I would have made fun of his pathetic dick years ago. And then the whole fucking family just burst into tears laughing. And I lorded that over him forever. Like, I, you know, and I told my mom, I told my mom, hey, guess what I did? You're going to be proud of me. I, I told I told dad that the reason I don't have a date is because I have a dick just like his and I can't please a person. And I also said, if I remember correctly, I said, actually, let's all be grateful that I haven't just taken somebody home and they've laughed at my tiny genitalia and I've beaten them to death with a lamp. We're, let's all be grateful. <laughs> and so my mom thought that was hilarious. And then she called my grandfather and said, you're never going to believe what Derek did. And he told his dad that he had, had a tiny dick. And my, of course, my granddad is like, he calls me and goes, Hey, it's not in my business, but is it true? Do you have a little tiny dick? (laughs) Yeah, I have a really tiny dick. It's really small. It's a really tiny dick. Ah, buddy. I am so sorry. Buddy, what do you like? How do you, you know, I knew guys in the army like that. And, you know, it can really ruin a guy. I mean, you know, do you want to do something about it? And I'm like, no, I'm fine. I'm happy with my dick. It's, I don't, I'm not a very sexual person, grandpa. I'm happy as I am. I got my movies and my video games. And he's like, then he started coming by and putting pamphlets in my mailbox. Jesus. Penis enlargement. <laughs> uh, I'm sh- I shit you not. Uh, I mean, he was like, I'll give you the money. And I was like, why don't you just send me to culinary school? And he's like, no, no, no. You got to get a dick. You got to get a regular dick. Like, I was like, can't we just take the money you're going to put in my dick surgery that I don't want and just send me to fucking Cordon Bleu or something so I have a trade? But no, nope, dicks. And then no, it, I was, it, is this the same grandpa? that had the emergency last time we tried to get together yeah okay so he's doing okay he's great he has um he's in stage late stage for dementia so so we have a lot of stuff going on there's and and he lives i i we moved him in here with us but it, it after almost a year it was a lot for my wife and i we just weren't prepared for the the changing needs that he had so we uh we got an apartment for him across the street at Brookdale Assisted Living for okay. memory care. And so I'm there all the time. I go see him all the time, but he's not like as funny. Across the street, that's great. That's yeah. convenient as, as all get We out. have a lot yeah. of weird little emergencies. Like he forgets that it's daytime when it's night or to eat for a couple of days or, you know, he does old man stuff. He yells at ladies that come into his room to, where the fuck are you? You're not my goddamn wife. And then they're like, why is he yelling at me? Mm-hmm. So... 
that's my 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 day job is taking care but he used to be not dementia so <laughs> right and really pro dick like really wanted me to have a big dick <laughs> just really, really wanted you to have a just a, a great piece fucking a, huge tool that would have made my uh, grandfather just a happy. hog just yeah. a hog for days and then everybody explained to him you know your grandson already is a huge tool you don't need to help him anymore well yeah. how, okay your grandma when she passed away was 92 so how old is he now He's 95. Actually, that 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 story, my uh, the story of my grandmother passing away is an amalgam because I have two grandmas that passed away within a couple of years of each other. Okay. And so it is actually a an amalgam of both those ladies that I kind of pasted together. Okay. Um, because they both reflect different sides of that attitude. But um, but my dad's mom is 92. My mom's mom was 88, I think. Or eighty-seven, and uh, she was always in bad health. But but my other grandma lived to ninety-two, and uh, I like talking about her. But I didn't want you know my uncle listens to my stand-up, so I was like, I'm gonna kind of put all grandmas together, all three of them in one person, because it all kind of makes sense. Although my granddad did say uh, that if he he did that as a quote, that if I knew at eighty when I know now, I would have killed myself at eighty. <laughs> And I was like, why would you say that? And he's like, because I don't wake up anymore. I come to. And yeah, I come to. Yeah. Like that, that was a real like, holy shit moment. Like 90th birthday. Like. And then he started forgetting things, which happens. Yeah. It's good. You know, I've been, it's- I've been very lucky with uh, death in the family. 41 years old. I still have three out of my four grandparents. So I've lost one and that's it. Uh, Yeah. I think I'm in the same, I mean, I'm 50, I'll be 52 in December and my great grandparents lived until my, I think I was 35 when I lost my, or no, I was like 30, 37 or 38. I was already married. So then I lost my great grandpa, then my, uh, my grandmother, then my great grandmother, uh, then my grandma. And then I still had my, my, I had my grandparents until, five years ago i still had one of everybody one from every group it's kind of nuts uh they'll live a long they live a long time if they get past 70 then just be prepared for them to live 20 more years at least (laughs) just just hanging on just 70 cut off you know they make it past that finish line then it's going to be horror the rest of the time they're just gonna (laughs) (laughs) i'm just here (laughs) why won't this end where is jeopardy where is alex trebek I don't understand. So you're very open about depression and abuse and alcoholism and those types of things. So I guess I don't know really where to, I guess you start with the abuse. You, you talk about abuse leading into everything else. So I guess I don't really know how to form the question, but where does the comedy of abuse come from? The survival. So I feel like it's the same kind of humor that, and and I'm not 
saying that these things are even remotely parallel, but it's the same mentality that the comedy that came out of the Holocaust, the most horrific thing that you can experience when you get out on the other side of it, you have to be able to take something away from that that isn't just the horror. You have to be able to diminish it in some mm -hmm. way. And that, that humor that comes out of it isn't necessarily a survival tactic. It's a way to diminish that horror. It's a way to take its power away and or the pain away and, uh, you know, and marginalize that thing so it's no longer at the forefront. And I think for a, a lot of kids that I know that were pretty, pretty badly fucked up, you know, I mean, uh, they all had to have a sense of humor about it or it ate them alive. And I know the kids that didn't weren't able to, to talk about it and make fun of of what happened and how you do that is, you know. You never, I never was, I was never like, um, I was never flip about it, you know, but I could talk about abuse and how it affected me in a way that I always thought was healthy because it removed me as the, uh, it, I didn't have anything to do with it. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't me. Mm -hmm. And once I was able to, to have, a, to take a step back and realize that I bear no responsibility for anything that happened. It was a person who had no control um you know they had um anger and rage issues and and that they had to live with that and that i can't give them any power and making fun of it diminishes their power altogether right. it takes it away and so uh that that was where and my mom taught me that my mom was abused even worse than i was i mean it was every day for her i mean it, her mom almost murdered her a few times and Jeez. she left home when she was 12 or 13 and got her own job, you know, worked as a live-in nanny for a Hungarian family. They were immigrants, and she lied about her age and raised their kids, taught them English, cleaned their house from top to bottom. They thought she was 17. She was like 13 years old, and she was like, buckle up, because, you know, this is what I have to do in order to survive, and, and she always said that the thing that rescued her was laughter. She found ways to not not make fun of it, but to make light of it. And, you know, to, to, to be able to look at it from a distance and go, this should happen to me, but here's why it's funny. Like, here's why it's funny to me. And here's how I can talk about it without bumming everybody out. Which is also a very fine line. You have to dance, mm -hmm. you know, cause I've had my issues, you know, I, I'm not perfect. I, whatever. And one of the things that I've always done as the funny guy is make fun of myself first. And I haven't had extensive trauma in my life. I've never been abused. I've never been sexually abused. I've never been beaten. I've never been any of this stuff. Any of the stuff that makes you curl up in a ball and suppress for years and years and years until it just comes out, you know, I've never had to deal with the intense emotions that a lot of people have had to deal with, but I've had to deal with my own head. And sometimes that can be your worst enemy, mm -hmm. regardless of what may or may not have happened. Your brain tells you this is how you feel. And I've been on three different antidepressants nothing works 
And because I'm a fucking child, I just give up on them and I don't go back and, you know, have a normal conversation with my doctor. And my wife wants to punch me in the face for not being an adult about it. But like, a lot of it has to do with, yeah, I'm depressed. I'm a 40, 41 year old you know, upper middle class white guy living in a nice house with nice cars. And I got two daughters and whatever, like nothing should be bad about your life, but your brain goes, fuck you, buddy. I mean, and, your brain is still, it can still be broken, you know? Right. That's and the it's, thing. You can it's so hard. hard to explain to somebody who doesn't get it. And I think that's so hard with my wife is she is 100%, 100% the strongest woman I've ever met in my life. The most independent woman I've ever met in my life on top of one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. I'm lucky to have her, but she doesn't get where I come from with this shit. She just doesn't get it because it's she doesn't have to deal with it. It's a very foreign world. I, I have a very similar situation. I mean, my, my wife had a, an incredible family. I mean, a great family unit. She came from a very healthy family. Uh, you know, uh, a brother, a sister, a mom, a dad, uh, uh, operating grandma and grandpa. Everyone had fun. They communicated. They were, you know, they um, encouraged each other. They were, they, you know, they allowed their ambitions to breathe and they gave each other hope and and when things were bad, they'd be there as a family. And I came from, you know, uh, like melted copper wire uh, in a, you know, ditched in, uh, in an outside toilet um, next to a family of raccoons uh, and, and like near a highway. And we, you know, we love each other, but we had, I mean, there's a, there's a lot that I put on her because mm -hmm. I, I think my expectation is that, you know, I had a lot of experiences and I'm surprised that I just, I think I expect that other people have also been through this and that's projection on my part. Right. Uh, and I learned about that, that I was projecting a lot of like, why aren't you getting this? Um, but it was a real shock to her. I mean, you know, 20 years down the road, we talk about this all the time. Cause when she tells, you know, when we talk to her friends who are like, you know, uh, like they'll listen to my stories and they'll go, Oh my God, I can't believe that happened to you. And my wife will go, he's not even telling you all of it. Like he's telling you the parts that are okay to tell. Like, she's like, I know it's blowing your mind, but he's actually editing right now. She'll say that shit, you know, in front of our friends to let him know, like you guys don't, because now she knows. And she's like, it's incredible to be around someone who has had that much like trauma or pain and not be able to relate to it on that level because you you know you, you got lucky and I feel like for her I had a lot of expectations but you know she was just it's hard she didn't know like the level of like abuse and right. and you know and and mental like psychological trauma that you carry with you and no matter how healthy I want to appear you know it's a constant you got to do the work all the time right like you got to constantly do that work and make sure that you're balancing things. Like, why is this popping in my head all of a sudden? Like there's little weird little triggers and I'm, I'm still figuring them out. But I, I also had to talk to somebody because 
I had to, I mean, I had to, at some point, my alcoholism got so bad and my anger and my rage, I mean, it's a perfect uh, uh, intersection of things that all banged into each other at once. And I needed to go see someone. And I had a lot of pride about that and fear going to talk to a therapist. Fuck. I just, I, you know, all I know is what I've seen on, you know, in movies and TV. And I'm like, eh, it's going to be a, a tete-a-tete, you know, I'm going to be right. fighting with somebody and they're going to try and change my mind or tell me my pain isn't legitimate or it's customer service. I already went into my first therapy session. Like, you're not going to fucking get it anyways. I don't even know why I'm telling you this. And this toaster doesn't work. And you're you not going to give me my money back. And they're like, no, I, I never said that. I, you can have your money back. I'm not going to fight you. Well, oh, okay. Well, oh, okay. well I don't sorry. have my receipt. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. Because so, yeah, I, 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 think- I, I get it. And I, I feel everything that you said. But <clears throat> the biggest problem I have <clears throat> sorry is i don't have any trauma mm. depression i, I just have i i the older i get the saggier i get and like <laughs> I, I don't know i i i don't get it like i have no trauma from a childhood other than yeah i was bullied a little bit whatever it happens but when i chose to be like the funny guy and like and make fun of myself first i think that's probably where it started like oh hey i'm the asshole not you ha 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 yay rainbows (laughs) and but as far as like family stuff goes solid you know i I was left alone i was left alone most most often as a child, I think, you know, probably around age eight, I think is when I really started, you know, we're talking about the eighties here. I was home alone a lot because my parents worked, you know, my, my parents worked their ass off when I was a kid. The eighties, man. Yeah. Did raise himself. Yeah. I mean, lock the door. Don't answer it for anybody you don't know. And you're good. And you know, that was about it. Like I didn't have, nobody abused me. Nobody hit me. Nobody neglected me. And sometime like in my twenties, my brain just went, fuck you buddy. And it just, it's been a decline ever since. And now, you know, my family now is paying for it and I don't know why. And, you know, I mean, you don't ever have to, you know, these things you're, your brain chemistry is, is so, it's so fucking complex and things can happen. You know, like you, there's never, there doesn't need to be a trigger for depression. Right. It just happens, you know, it, and, and you have to just figure out how do I adjust to it? You know, how do I adapt to this thing? Because I can't let it destroy me. And, you know, I mean, I, I had the ad, I think for me, I, my depression, I could add the added bonus of having something tangible I could place it on and go, well, that's why, you know, but even then, I mean, that was only a part of it. That could only be an excuse because I wasn't living there anymore. You know, I was in my thirties when I started seeing a therapist and that depression is just going to happen. You know, you have ambitions, you have hopes, the things that you think in your, your mind, I got to be doing these things. And, but your self-confidence and fear and all these things just, you know, and life, just changes everything and your brain chemistry changes and your body chemistry changes. And, 
you know, it's not any, I don't think it has, I don't think it's situational is what I'm saying. Like, I don't think depression is caused by a thing. I think depression is just a natural occurrence that a lot of us have to grapple with. And it could happen to anybody. I mean, like how many people we in our lives, like we've seen or they have, 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 have thought like, what a, they have everything. They have a great life and everything seems to be working out for them. All their dreams have come true, but they don't make it. And, and it's because that's all just stuff, you know, like it's, right. it, this is where we live all the time. We're always in our heads. And so, you know, everything changes and, and, and you're, you know, you're, it's hard to keep up with. I medic, I used to medicate until about four years ago and it was a very hard decision because I had a lot of, um, I, I mean, I, I have, I have a lot of problems committing to things as well. And I was scared shitless of what it's going to do for my creative process. You know, and that's a lot of comics don't do antidepressants because in there they've heard that rumor and it's not true that you're going to lose yourself and you're always going to be happy, which what a fucking th dumb threat, right? Right. You're going to be, you don't want to be happy all the time because then your comedy's not going to be great. Fuck that. <laughs> if I had a fucking choice of like doing the improv in Hollywood tonight or living on a beach somewhere, I'm going to that fucking beach. Right. Because there's not going to be one person sitting there like this out of 300 people that's going to drive me to want to fucking eat a gun later because I can't get their arms uncrossed because that's what your brain does. You know, I could be in a great situation, but I'm always going to focus on that little negative thing. And it's just right. a thing that I do. And man, pills helped. Uh, they really and not drinking, but pills definitely help. But they're different for everybody. I know people that can't do it. But you know, we're, we're, it's an uphill battle, man. We're in your 40s. Congratulations, you know. <laughs> I feel like when you get past 30 and you, you, like, you put some things together, the fight is just keeping your fucking puzzle together, right? Like, you've kind of put everything together. It's on the table. Now you just got to keep it safe. Yeah, I'm missing and... a few corners, but I'm all right. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know if that analogy was going to carry any weight or not. No, no, I, you know, I get it. I absolutely get it. You right. know, we, like I said, my my wife and I have been together for been married since 2013, so we're we're creeping up on eight years here in September. And you know, I'm 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 once divorced and I have an older an older daughter too. And you know, I think I think a lot of I think a lot of it has to come with that, like. It's not so much like, oh, I'm so sad that that part of my life is over. It's just the mental anguish of having to deal with that kind of, you know, I don't want to talk to this person, but I have to <laughs> because I have a child with them. And now she's old enough now where I can communicate through my daughter to my ex-wife, even though it doesn't always work out great. It's just uh, whatever, but you know that that's caused a lot of it. But I don't know. I don't know. It, it's it's so hard for me to categorize anything that I've gone through because I've never actually sat down and talked to somebody. I mean, it, it really can. I I I, I can never um, I can never recommend it highly enough. That it just it is such a game changer when you when you're able to have someone that's completely objective just who is an active listener 
Like in most of our lives, the people that we're talking to, we're obligated to each other in some way. So there has to be right. some part of the social contract that we, you know, we go, oh, it's going to be fine. Or, you know, no, it's not so bad. Don't say that. You're a great guy. Uh, you know, that's what we do to each other because we're comforting. And, and it's nice to have some objective go, well, let's open the fucking hood and see what's in here. Right. You know, and what's under this thing. And then what's under this thing. And it really helps to kind of get in the toy box, man, and start digging in because when you have someone that, that, that doesn't care in the sense that like, they're not obligated emotionally, it all, all of a sudden you're like, when, after a couple of times, I was like, oh, I don't have, there's no risk of me being honest, like brutally honest right. with myself in front of you because there's nothing that's going to come back. Like you're just here to be uh, like a human, uh, like just a human microphone. Like you hear the things I'm saying amplified and you're processing and you're processing. And, and it just, it helps because trying to do this, this stuff on our own, man, it just, it can make it harder because, you know, what if you make a mistake, then you're going to be even 10 times harder on yourself, you know? And which is kind of, I think where the stage I'm at now is I'm trying to do it on my own. And not... <sighs> it sucks. It's, it's exhausting. It's, it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And it puts a lot of pressure on your relationships, you know, because again, there's communication. I, I mean, I put my wife through some horrific things. You know, I mean, just put her in situations where, you know, like not just my drug abuse, but my alcoholism and my learn, you know, coming, coming to grips with some shit that like came back into my mind that I thought I put in Pandora's box, you know, and, and we just have, you know, she's really had to do a lot and taking the time to step back and go, Hey, I'm going to do this for me so that I can do this for you. was like world changing, you know, when she realized that I'm now going to just I know that I know that I need this. I'm going to try it because it's important to like be able to stay com to communicate with you and trust you and have you trust me and have me stop pushing you into traffic emotionally all the time as a joke, you know? Right. So I, I, and it really helped a lot. I can't recommend it highly enough. I mean, the, their therapists are great. Uh, uh, most of them, 90% of them, 10% of them, they're going to try and sell you supplements. But like 90% of them are just, they're good. They're just there. They just do this. And they're like, oh, well, that sounds interesting. And they're like, what do you mean it sounds interesting? It's, it's not, it's more than interesting. Let me tell you why. I'm getting into the fucking toy box. Hold on a second. Then you peel your first layer of skin off. And before you know it, you've started telling them things you haven't talked about in forever. And you, you said a little bit ago that you're not on antidepressants now. No, I um. I was on a pretty heavy dose and we dosed down. I was on it for about 10 years. I did um, citalopram. Yeah. Uh, I is... tried a few and, and, um, and the heavy stuff, I was like, I don't like it. It felt like there was a barrier. Like I was, I could watch myself talking to people. And I didn't like that. Citalopram mm -hmm. just after a couple of weeks, true story that my doctor was like, Hey, you just got to get through the first two weeks of this drug. You're going to have suicidal thoughts. You're going to have sleepless nights. You're going to have anxiety because your body's trying to figure out how to level out these chemicals. And when, if you get through this and you know it's happening, you're going to feel it and you're going to feel better. You're just going to feel like you're able to focus and, and you're not, their voices aren't pounding at the door all the time. 
And you couldn't imagine those two weeks though. Jesus Christ. It wasn't as bad as he made it sound, but he was giving me the prep talk. Like it could be bad. Right. And once I knew it, I prepped because I was like, all right. So I know that in the next two weeks, if I have these thoughts or feelings, it's because I'm going through a chemical change. And after that, I, all of a sudden, man, I woke up and, and I, I didn't, it wasn't like sunshine came in the room, but I was like, wow, I don't feel like I'm the only person here right now. I don't feel like I'm the only person, like I'm doing everything alone in my head or I'm carrying any weight. Just felt like someone took the fucking backpack off and they were like, you don't need to take this everywhere. And I was able to just have some freedom of movement. And then once I, you know, I did that for a while and I tried to drink with it because I had an alcohol problem I wasn't ready to get rid of. And that was hard. Um, we got to a place where when I quit drinking, all that shit just kind of went away. Like, my anger issues, my suicidal ideations, my feelings of self-destructive, like it all just like I, cause I quit cause I wanted to. And I went, I don't want to do this anymore. And after a few months, my doctor was like, we went and had an assessment uh, because I had, they had me on suicide watch for a little while. Cause I I would say that shit as a joke. And, right. but I wasn't joking. You know, it's projection. You say those things and you yeah, know that right. they're going to cry for help, but you're also, there's always, there always a nugget of truth. Yeah. And we did an assessment and I was brutally honest with him. And I went, man, I, I feel like I'm on a, like I'm on a plateau, like I'm moving away from something. Like I don't want to hurt myself, you know, or anybody. Like, I just feel good. I feel like even though things are shitty, I feel like I have the tools now to go forward. And he was like, I would love to take you off of citalopram because, you know, you've been on it for almost 10 years. It's not great for your body you shouldn't be on it forever and you're doing all the things you need to do and he literally said how do you feel about marijuana and i was like not good doc because you know it's a drug and blah and he was like you've been on citalopram for 10 years so i went okay well and he's like i'm telling you it was in the dare program doctor don't you <laughs> understand geez why are you trying to get me on hooked on drugs are you a dealer <laughs> and he was like go fucking get weed man he's like you know what your anxiety and shit it will calm you down you know he tried to talk me into microdosing he was like you know do you want to do mushrooms man you want to do a little psilocybin every day to kind of set your clock and i was like i'll do the pot and i started smoking weed and of course i have a very addictive personality so you know i started smoking weed a lot because i was like Phew, this is going to be i feel like today's going to be tense but it didn't have that same feeling that alcohol did where I was like, I've lost control. Now I'm sad. I want to punch a wall. My dad's dead. Oh. <laughs> Pot was like, oh man, I'm fucking free. This is good. Okay. Well, maybe we'll cook or we'll play video games. So, you know, let's take a little break. Let's read a little bit. Right. And, you know, he still, I do, I go twice a year. I do a, an assessment with my, my physician who, you know, does a mental acuity check, uh, emotional, psychological, you know, drug dependency check. And it's every year, he's just like, you know, it's amazing how where I was five years ago versus where I am now in my predisposition where, you know, I, things have gotten, actually the last two years have been the worst years of my life. I can't imagine two worse years. And I've had still probably the best time going through them. Somehow, I was like, this is a challenge and it, it couldn't have come at a better time. So let's, you know, maybe not, and maybe testing the tensile strength of your resistance to, uh, you know, to depression 
isn't always the best thing to do, but right. I felt like, you know what? It's a trampoline now and I can just bounce on it and I'm fine and I'm safe and we're going to get through this. We have, we, I know what my support system is now. I know what my limits are. I know what I can and can't do. And I'm willing to ask for help when I need it. And it was the absolute most breathtakingly shitty two years I could ever imagine and wouldn't wish on anybody. But at the same time, I feel like it's been a good two years for finding out who I am and what I'm living for um, and why, why I want to continue living. It, it was good to like put, put, that, put that back in, 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 in focus for me. That's awesome. You know? So I don't know. I mean, maybe it's too positive, but, uh, but I feel like as bad as things are, if this would have happened five or six years ago or seven years ago, I don't think I would have made it. But I think I, I opened myself up enough to want that change in my life that when the bottom dropped out, I was like, you're not going to get me this time. Like I, oh, bottom's going to drop out fine. Then I'm on another floor. You know, there we are. And if there's awesome. a bottom under this, then guess what? We just gonna, we're just going to keep going new places. We'll just check them out. What's in here. You know, it's, I can't let it, I just can't let it destroy me anymore. I'm, I'm done with me trying to ruin me. And I like me now. I'm fine. That was <laughs> perfectly said. And with that, I think, I think it's time to wrap it up because I well, was. I'm so perfect... sorry, by the way. I talked way too no, long. No, you're the guest. You're supposed to talk. You're supposed to talk. Two you're hours of your life you'll never get back, my friend. No, I, I, I love it because I'm honored to have a celebrity to sit down and talk to me and we can be real about stuff like this and, and be open about stuff like this. And it's amazing because whether you want to admit it ever or not, some of the things you said, you know, they, they hit home and they make me think so, which is awesome. Well, that's um, awesome. I do. I, I do have to ask though, the, the hair and the beard since <laughs> is, is that, is that a, is that a COVID grow out or was that a, a personal choice it started as a covid thing and i because i was like well i'm just gonna grow it and now i've gotten to a place where i can't stop playing with it and i'm like i enjoy it and i'm you know i'm gonna be i'm gonna go to my christmas like my high school reunion thing they do they do every year we haven't done it in a couple of years and i'm gonna see all my friends who all my friends are like they are wearing their age, baby, except for a couple of dudes who are like, who like, like tight abs and still work out. But like the majority of my senior class has lived. They have lived and done life and had families. And they were like, what's important right now? Doing fucking ab crunches or, you know, fucking taking a break and watching a movie with my husband and or my wife. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to show up to that fucking reunion with a head full of hair, like a full <laughs> head of hair. And I'm going to be the most, I'm going to be the guy that I wanted to be in 1987. I'm going to be yeah, the guy who bitch. I'm going to show up and be like, Hey, does anyone want to take a ride in my charger? Like, I want to be that guy. I want to walk in with a cigarette, even though I don't smoke and just be like, just started this. Anybody want one? These are great. Whoever heard of these? I want to be that guy. Just all kind of greasy, a little oily, but all the, all the moms are just like, Oh my God, you were such a creep in high school, but you're so fuckable now. I want to be a that guy, guy. A guy in front of you holding a fan, blowing your hair back. <laughs> just 
up, bitches. (laughs) This is where like my my brain and my dark brain goes is I'm like, I want to go from most fuckable kid to most fuckable 52-year-old man. That's where I want to go. (laughs) I want to be. And that takes a full circle. And with that, (laughs) go ahead and plug anything that you need to plug right now. I know you've got some shows coming up. I know that you just postponed a show in Oregon. Yeah, and Eugene, uh, it was indoors and uh, Lane County. The numbers are going up and and everybody's a little nervous about indoor shows. I have an outdoor show next weekend we're going to keep doing because it's big outdoor space. But that shit's going to happen, I think, in the next few months. I'm going to see some stuff get trimmed out. It's fine. Um, You know what? Go to Derek Sheen Rules, R-U-L-Z.com. Uh, for the calendar and clips and go listen to all my albums on Spotify or Tidal or don't, you don't have to buy them. Just go listen to them or steal them. I think I encourage that to steal it. I don't Fit think really, I don't think stealing is a thing anymore, really. Cause I, think, I mean, cause you can just yeah. listen to them for free. Amazon, right? Spotify. I mean, I think Dan get, put everything on YouTube too. You so get you, your point zero 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 three four cents. Every time I listen to yeah. a track, I mean, Here's my feeling on that is I am I that's why I encourage people to like download it, BitTorrent it. I don't care. It's less insulting to steal from me than to write me a check for 13 cents. Yeah, like that hurts worse when I open an envelope that someone had to buy an envelope and then pr- printer paper and ink to to send me a check for 13 cents for like 30,000 listens. Like plus a 40 just, what 43 cent stamp or whatever it is now. Because yeah. I feel like stealing just says like I like your stuff, but I just don't have the money to pay for it. And uh, sending me a thirteen cent check says, "This is the value we think all of your art has." Go fuck yourself. Yeah, like it just it. says that. God, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I do know that you, at least on the books now, I think it was what New Year's Eve. New Year's with, Eve with Patton. With Patton. Oh my God, I at love the, Patton at the Paramount Theater um uh new year's eve it's gonna be nuts we've done it we've did we did a new year's eve show before um someday i'll tell you that story uh because it's fucking bananas um and it's even funnier than the casino story i'm looking forward to that you know the casino story right i, uh, I think he did it on werewolves no uh best uh best hour or uh, uh finest hour he talks about going to a native american casino yeah 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 yeah. okay yeah i was yeah, the opener yeah. that was me oh, i was no the way. opener on the show Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so we had a we had a weirder one, but he hasn't talked about it. But I'll tell you some other time off 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 the air. That's um, perfect. But yeah, New Year's Eve and check out that or just find me on Twitter or, or find me on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, I think it's at Derek Sheen on Twitter and Derek Sheen 666 on Instagram. Very accessible. You've interacted with all of my tweets and, and posts yes. and whatnot. So I encourage anybody uh, to listen reach out, follow, post, comment, anything. The yeah. amazing Dan Sheen, ladies and gentlemen. Dan Sheen, everybody. Thanks for having me, Thank Cross. Thank you so much. I love, <laughs> yeah. I love it. Thank you very much. Good. I really appreciate it. Such a pleasure, it. man. I really appreciate it. And I talked to Dan. I'm going to try and come out to Jukebox. We're going to work that out. It's I hope so. Hey. Request me if you get a chance. I, I appreciate it. I any Any chance I get, I will definitely request you. So if I hear you're coming, I will definitely be there front row. Yeah, guest list forever. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Have a great night. Thanks, man. You too. Take care. 
I hope Gramps is doing okay. Let's I'm uh, check on him. Yeah. Thank you very much. Have a great night. You too. Thank you. Yep. See ya. And that's it. Thank you again for listening to my interview with comedian Derek Sheen. I truly appreciate all of you who take the time to listen and have put up with my bullshit for the last however long because nobody wants to be on this podcast apparently because uh, it takes work and effort. Um, I would really appreciate it if you would put in the time and effort to give me your story so I can share it for you and let anybody out there who's listening who may be going through the same stuff as you to know that they're not alone. Uh, music is always, even though they are no longer together, is provided by Mike Protich of Red Sun Rising. Um, they are now currently, I'm sorry, he is now currently in uh, the new band, The Violent, uh, with two other members of Red Sun Rising. And they've put out four songs now, and they're all four amazing, and I totally encourage you to check them out. Uh, their newest uh, single, Think For Yourself, just dropped yesterday on uh, Friday, August the 6th, and it's another banger. All four of them are great. I cannot wait until they start to tour, and uh, I can go see them in person again. Um, but that's all I got. Um, follow me on Twitter at Here's My Story Pod. Um, on Instagram, I don't have an Instagram for the pod anymore, um, but my personal account is at Ciliato, S I L L Y O T T O, I think. Maybe it's got the number two. Yeah, Ciliato 2, S I L L Y O T T O, and the number two. Uh, Facebook, there's the Here's My Story uh, podcast Facebook group. I mean, you can join it if you want, but nobody ever posts anything. And that's me included because I suck at that, but whatever. Um, but once again, I just want to thank everybody for listening. And I want to thank Derek Sheen for being on. Um, again, he was awesome to talk to. Um, hopefully, I will have uh, a chance to see him or talk to him again soon. Uh, but also, most importantly, I hope I have another episode for you sooner than later. So thank you for listening. Be safe. Take care of each other. We'll see you soon.
Let's carry on.